and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Conrad. Thank you for listening. In the last episode, we saw the fate of the Paris Commune, the autonomous socialist government established in Paris in the wake of the Prussian-slash-German siege of Paris. The Commune's leaders erroneously believed that they could negotiate with the newly established central government, now led by the monarchist politician Adolf Thiers. While the Commune's government legislated revolutionary changes to the way labor and gender functioned in society, Thiers and his ministers based out of Versailles were preparing an army to crush the rebellious city. In what has become known to history as the Bloody Week, troops loyal to the Versailles government assaulted the city. From the outset, the odds were stacked against the Communards. They had larger numbers on paper, to be sure, and won over a number of competent military leaders to their cause, but they were no match for the full force of the French army. The Versailles showed no mercy. During Bloody Week, 20,000 Parisians were killed. Executions, not combat, accounted for the vast majority of these deaths. Anyone even suspected of harboring communard sympathies was arrested, and many were extrajudicially executed. 40,000 Parisians were taken prisoner during Bloody Week. They were frog-marched south through the burnt-out husk of Paris to Versailles, where they were held in conditions that most people would describe as inhumane. All told, of the 40,000 people arrested during Bloody Week, ultimately, only 16,000 were tried. These trials were very public and emotional affairs. They were also quite lengthy, carrying on well into the year 1875. In 1872, 24,000 prisoners were granted a pardon on humanitarian grounds. The government simply could no longer justify continuing to hold all these people in the overcrowded jails of the city any longer. One of the earliest trials was held in August 1871. Fifteen members of the commune, including two of the central committee, were tried. Of them, two were sentenced to death, commander of the National Guard Charles Lullier and Theophile Ferré the man who signed the death warrant for Archbishop Georges Darbois. Thanks to his army connections, Lullier was able to have his sentence commuted to hard labor, but there would be no reprieve for Ferret. Louis Rossel, who was also arrested while attempting to flee the city in disguise, was sentenced to death. The judges, all military men, felt some degree of sympathy for Rossel, believing him to have been misguided, but the penalty for treason was death, and so, on November 28, 1871, both Ferré and Rossel were led out into a field south of Versailles and were executed by firing squad. Ninety-three more death sentences were formally handed down in the months that followed. The recipients of these death sentences were mainly individuals who were responsible in some way for the deaths of Archbishop Georges Darbois or Generals Lecomte and Clement Thomas. The painter, Gustave Courbet, for his role in the destruction of the Vendôme Column, was sentenced to six months hard labor and fined 250,000 francs. Upon finishing his sentence, Corbet fled to Switzerland to avoid paying the fine. Louise Michel made a spectacle of her day in court. She claimed full responsibility for crimes that she wasn't even accused of, and demanded to be given the death penalty, saying, quote, Since it seems that any heart which beats for freedom has the right only to a lump of lead, I too claim my share. If you let me live... I shall never stop crying for revenge, and I shall avenge my brothers. I have finished. If you are not cowards, then kill me. End quote. She, like 4,500 or so of her comrades, was instead sentenced to lifetime deportation to New Caledonia. During his second voyage in 1774, 
British explorer James Cook discovered a rather large island, 7,000 square miles, located 750 miles east of Australia. He dubbed the island New Caledonia, after an antiquated name for Scotland, because for some reason this tropical Melanesian island reminded the captain of Scotland. The native inhabitants of the island were known as the Kanak. Reportedly, the encounter between the Kanak and the first British expedition was rather cordial. The British and the Kanak exchanged goods, and writings from the expedition described the Kanak as a hospitable and peaceable people. The islander's subsequent encounter with a French expedition nearly 15 years later was not nearly as cordial. The French were far more standoffish than the British had been, which led to conflict between the two. French suspicion of cannibalism amongst the Kanak only worsened their suspicion of them, leading them to write the people off as ignoble savages. As was typical of colonial encounters, the French came away from their initial encounter with the Kanak with the notion that it was their duty to raise these people out of their savagery, and to impress upon them the values of French civilization. French priests belonging to the Society of Mary, known as the Marists, began to visit the island regularly and preach Catholicism to the natives. It was not until 1853, during the reign of Napoleon III, that the island of New Caledonia was officially annexed by the Second French Empire. The French civilizing mission on New Caledonia got off to a very slow start. A decade after the island had been claimed for France, New Caledonia boasted a European population of only 350, as compared to the 70,000 native Kanak. Moreover, most of these European settlers were of Irish or Scottish extraction by way of Australia. Many factors accounted for the minuscule French presence on the island, including fear of the natives inculcated by stories of cannibalism, the inhospitable nature of the island itself, and what historian Alice Boulard describes as the traditional French reluctance to settle abroad. To speed up the process, New Caledonia was designated a penal colony in 1863. Between that time and the fall of the empire in 1870, approximately 2,000 or so petty criminals were deported to the island. When it came time to decide the fate of the some 40,000 Parisians arrested in the wake of the commune's collapse, Deportation to New Caledonia seemed to authorities to be the perfect option for those whose crimes did not warrant execution, but were nonetheless unworthy to simply be released back into society after a short stint in a French prison. The vast majority of these prisoners were political prisoners, guilty only of some sort of association with the commune, whether real or imagined. But, as the Vicomte d'Ausonville, head of the government committee on deportation, argued, many of these people were already criminals in some way or another. They were recidivists, people with prior criminal backgrounds, vagrants, beggars, or otherwise undesirable elements of Parisian society even before the events of 1871. Although the actions of the communards were often derided as savage and antithetical to civilization by reactionary politicians and journalists post-1871, it was believed that, deep down, these Frenchmen still held the values of civilization within their hearts. Dawsonville claimed that deporting the communards to New Caledonia, they would be forced to adapt to their natural surroundings, and in doing so, they would naturally rediscover the values of civilization, which Dawsonville and many others believed was entirely natural. These deportations would serve a dual purpose, rehabilitating the communards into Christian society, and it was hoped that the influence of the communards would sway the Kanak to learn the values of civilization as well. After all, in the chauvinist colonial mindset, even the worst Frenchman was better off than the best native.
As I said, some 4,500 communards were deported to New Caledonia. The journey was arduous. After having spent months in rudimentary holding cells outside Paris, the deportees were stuffed haphazardly into the cargo holds of ships, sometimes not being allowed on deck for the entirety of the four- to five-month journey. Rather than simply being unceremoniously dumped into this open-air prison, specific locations were set aside for the prisoners. The worst offenders, meaning those who had actually been convicted of a criminal infraction in addition to their political crimes, were subjected to forced labor on the islet of Nu. Those sentenced to deportation to a fortified place were allotted land on the Ducos Peninsula, not far from the administrative capital of Nomea, where the authorities could keep an eye on them. Those merely sentenced to deportation were sent to the Isle of Pines, some 60 miles or so off the coast of the main island. New Caledonia as a whole was dotted with Canuck settlements and plantations, which grew taro and yams and whatnot, but it had little in the way of western infrastructure. Most extant infrastructure was either in Nomea, the capital, or on the prison islet of Nu. On the Ducos Peninsula and on the island of Pines, there were hardly any roads, no running water, and very few buildings. The island's administration was tasked with providing clothes, food, and other basic necessities to the prisoners, but very often these provisions were of substandard quality, or of too little quantity. Many prisoners, out of desperation, traded the very clothes on their backs to the Kanak for food. The convicts themselves were tasked with the building of their own shelter. They built rudimentary huts, which were, more often than not, inferior in construction to those of the native Kanak. Many deportees, initially happy to be out of the cargo hold and to finally see the sun for the first time in months, were bitterly disappointed when they actually arrived at the destinations that were to be their homes for the foreseeable future. One deportee wrote back to his mother in France that, quote, you could not imagine such a sad sight, end quote. The deportees were expected to build their own shelter, and, for the first few years, they were given relatively free reign to live however they chose. The deportees quickly arranged themselves into self-governing units they, perhaps self-awarely, called communes. In total, only 20 women were among the deportees. Wishing to prevent the prospect of intermarriage between the communards and the Kanak, the administration allowed for the, any spouses of prisoners free passage to New Caledonia. In this way, 174 families were reunited by 1878. In the Vicomte de vision for the penal colony, the deportees would find new purpose in hard labor, building shelter, taming the land, and whatnot, but all this proved all but impossible. The New Caledonian climate was not suitable at all for growing European crops. Thus, many of the settlers were unable to grow their own food, and many starved as a result. Life on New Caledonia as a whole was miserable. Between starvation, tropical disease, and suicide, 300 prisoners died within the first five years of their sentences. Life for those on the islet of No had it even worse. Subjected as they were to backbreaking manual labor and ritualized corporal punishment, but on the whole, at least for those living on the Ducos Peninsula and the Island of Pines, administration was relatively benign. This all changed in 1874, when a group of high-profile deportees organized a daring escape, the only such successful attempt in New Caledonia's history. One prisoner, Francois Jourde, obtained permission from the administration to work in the city of Nomea. There, he established contact with a British merchant named Captain John Law. He paid off Captain Law to allow himself and a number of other prisoners to hide out in the stow of his ship when he set sail for Australia. Among these prisoners were Pascal Grosset, Achille Belair, 
and Victor Henri Rochefort. The plan went off without a hitch, and the men were dropped off in Sydney, Australia. From there, the group went all their separate ways. Most went to the United States, while the more bold among them attempted to return to Europe. Rochefort himself stayed in America for quite some time. He gave several lectures describing his experiences with the siege in the commune, as well as his life in New Caledonia. In these lectures, he strongly condemned the Third French Republic for the way it treated its prisoners, accusing them, not the Kanak, of being the truly ignoble savages. The administration was humiliated by the escape. A draconian series of new rules were enacted. Administration kept much closer tabs on prisoners than ever before. Contact between the prisoners and the Kanak was restricted. Prisoners were forbidden from even approaching the sea or the forest without express permission from their guards. In the summer of 1878, another event occurred which prompted further repression, the Kanak Revolt. Dissatisfaction with French colonialism among the Kanak had been growing for decades, although resistance was unsystemic. This time, nearly all the disparate clans of New Caledonia united in one alliance against the French. They first attempted to attack Nomea, but they were repulsed, after which point they began to target individual French colonists out in the countryside. All in all, 200 Frenchmen were killed. In retaliation, 1,000 Kanak were killed, and 1,000 more were taken prisoner. Where were the former communards during this uprising? Why did they not rise up with the Kanak to defeat their common enemy? Well, some of them actually did assist the Kanak in their insurrection. For instance, Louise Michel, who had started a school for the Kanak in the first years of her sentence, provided moral and medical support to the Kanak during the fight, and she even gifted one young Kanak fighter a red scarf that she had worn back during Bloody Week. Unfortunately, Michel was one of the few Europeans who sympathized strongly with the Kanak. If the experiment of the New Caledonia penal colony had achieved anything, it had convinced the average deportee of the savageness of the Kanak and of the superiority of European civilization. The violent attacks carried out on fellow colonists led the former communards to fear the Kanak. This materialized itself on widespread inaction among the deportees during the uprising. Meanwhile in France, the period following the suppression of the commune up until the outbreak of the First World War was one of relative peace and stability, known to historians as La Belle Epoque, or the Beautiful Era. This period was a golden age of art and technological advancement. Politically, the Third French Republic was dominated initially by conservatives, most of whom were royalists, no less. Thiers spent the remainder of his tenure as president trying to pay off the remainder of the war indemnity to Germany and to end the occupation. Despite the monarchist majority in the National Assembly, the monarchy was never restored. The Orleanist heir, whom Thiers would have supported, was deemed to be far too reactionary, even for the reactionary politics of the time. Thiers decided to bide his time and wait for the old man to die so his more liberal heir could take over. But by the time that came to pass, public opinion no longer supported a return to monarchy, and Thiers no longer held the office of president. He was replaced in 1873 in this position by none other than General Patrice de McMahon, the man who had led the Versailles troops during the Paris Commune uprising. The left wing was rendered more or less inert in France following the suppression of the Commune, as politics took a much more conservative bent in the years that followed. Many politicians of the Third Republic used their involvement in the Commune suppression to grant them legitimacy, such as the aforementioned McMahon and Georges Boulanger, whose platform of aggressive nationalism, conservative politics, and the restoration of the monarchy made him extremely popular among the working class. 
His movement, Boulangism, has been described as being proto-fascist in nature, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. Boulanger wouldn't take power until the 1880s. As the decade of the 1870s went on, Republicans slowly began to gain more power. In 1877, President Patrice de McMahon attempted to do what Napoleon III had done two decades prior. He attempted to carry out a self-coup. He tried to dissolve the National Assembly and extend his term. Unlike Napoleon III, however, McMahon's coup attempt failed, and he soon after resigned in disgrace. Subsequent elections saw the Republicans secure victory, and, in 1879, Jules Grévy, the Third Republic's first true Republican president, was inaugurated. With half a decade having elapsed since the events of the Paris Commune, the topic of amnesty had become somewhat of a hot-button issue. Nearly every working-class Parisian had had some sort of relationship to somebody who was caught up in the suppression of the Commune. Despite the more liberal nature of the new government, there was still great reluctance to grant amnesty and allow for repatriation. It took a series of student protests in 1878, in conjunction with the legislative efforts of Léon Gambetta, for the government to announce a partial amnesty in the January of 1879. Per the terms of the Amnesty of 1879, all but 1,000 of the worst offenders were allowed to return to France from New Caledonia, as well as 2,000 of the 2,400 who were sentenced in absentia following the fall of the Commune. Government officials feared the return of the prisoners would result in a breakdown of public orders, but quite the opposite thing occurred. The returning exiles were greeted by massive, joyful, and mostly law-abiding crowds. In the midst of the celebration, more left-wing elements of the National Assembly continued to push for complete and total amnesty, which Gambetta's opportunist Republicans managed to pass in July 1880. The fates of the former communards were as diverse as the group itself. For the most part, the exiles, exhausted and subdued, were mostly content to reunite with their friends and families, rather than return to radical politics. Mutual aid societies were set up to aid the exiles' reintegration into French society. Some did return to political life. Louise Michel, for example, opened up a school in Paris that catered to children of exiles and taught the writings of the likes of Mikhail Bakunin and other anarchist writers. Later on, Michel became an avid public speaker, and well into her old age she traveled throughout Europe, giving speeches and lectures on anarchism, which attracted thousands of listeners at every stop. Other returnees were not so brave as to return to politics. Many went on to pursue careers in journalism, literature, or even in business. There were also a great many communards who were able to escape justice in the aftermath of Bloody Week. Many of these, as previously mentioned, were sentenced in absentia, but received amnesty just the same. Here is as good a place as any to talk about some of them. For instance, Valerie Wroblewski was able, with the help of a fellow Polish émigré, to flee to London. In fact, London was a popular destination for former communards, and they all kept in close contact with each other there. Prosper Olivier Lisa Jarret, from whose first-hand account of the commune I have quoted extensively, managed to evade the authorities and reach London, where he stayed with the family of Karl Marx, and was eventually betrothed to his daughter Eleanor. The engagement was eventually broken off, however, as Mrs. Marx did not approve of her daughter being with somebody 17 years her elder. Felix Piat was among those who managed to flee to London. After the amnesty was proclaimed, he returned to France and actually became a senator in 1888. Paul Antoine Brunel, a general of the National Guard, also fled to Britain, but there he sought out a different sort of new life for himself. He somehow managed to become an instructor at the Dartmouth Naval Academy, 
where he had as a pupil the future King George V. Gustave Paul Cluseret, former commander of the National Guard, remained stateless for quite some time after fleeing France. He traveled throughout Switzerland, Britain, and the Ottoman Empire before returning to France after the amnesty. Elizabeth Dmitriev, co-founder of the Women's Union for the Defense of Paris, suffered from a different kind of exile. Wounded during Bloody Week, she fled first to Switzerland before returning to Russia, whereupon she married a man who was sentenced to exile in Siberia. She followed him there and lived out the rest of her life there. In summary, the events of 1870 and 1871 had a profound effect on the history of France, and for that matter, the rest of the world. The results of the Franco-Prussian War had massive geopolitical ramifications. The balance of power, which the conservatives of Europe had strived so hard to maintain following the Napoleonic Wars, had been disturbed. The German Empire, formed as a direct result of the war, would, following the ascension of Wilhelm II and the dismissal of Bismarck, pursue a new, more aggressive form of foreign policy, called the Weltpolitik, that would eventually lead to conflict with the other great powers of Europe. France, on the other hand, was profoundly humiliated by its defeat. The idea of revanchism, retaking lost territories from Germany, would be a powerful undercurrent in French politics for decades to come. Compared to the Napoleonic Wars which came before it and World War I which came after it, the Franco-Prussian War may seem relatively insignificant. It lasted a little over six months, there were less than a million casualties on both sides of the conflict, and what's more, only two countries were involved. And, at the war's conclusion, Europe returned to the state of relative peace and stability it had enjoyed following Napoleon's defeat in 1815. But in many ways, the Franco-Prussian War set the stage for the First World War, and the Second World War for that matter. The Paris Commune is notable for being the first socialist government in history. It is not the first attempt at establishing socialist ideas and praxis, however. In the first half of the 19th century, early socialists such as Robert Owen and Charles Fourier had attempted to create their own communes in the wilderness, new societies, completely separated from capitalist civilization, and ran according to utopian socialist ideas. However, the Paris Commune marks the first time that socialists had attempted to replace a pre-existing government with one of their own design. Karl Marx, who was 53 years old at the time, watched the developments in Paris with great interest, and wrote much about the Commune. Sure, in his opinion, the Communards had made quite a few mistakes failing to seize Versailles while they had the chance, cooperating with the big banks instead of expropriating them, constantly infighting amongst themselves, and so on. Marx did not withhold himself from criticizing the Commune and his leadership, but, nevertheless, the Commune provided him with a tangible example of his theories and practice. In the immediate aftermath of its suppression, he amended a portion of the Communist Manifesto, which he had written more than two decades prior, to reflect these developments. Specifically, he wrote, quote, much that the state of things may have altered during the last 25 years. The general principles laid down in the manifesto are, on the whole, as correct today as ever. Here and there some detail might be improved. The practical application of the principles will depend, as the manifesto itself states, everywhere and at all times, on the historical conditions for the time being existing, and, for that reason, no special stress is laid on the revolutionary measures proposed at the end of section 2. In view of the practical experience gained in the Paris Commune, where the proletariat for the first time held political power for two whole months, this program has, in some details, been antiquated. One thing especially was proved by the Commune. 
that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. End quote. What exactly Marx has meant by this has been the topic of debate in leftist circles for years. While the Paris Commune is doubtlessly significant in the theoretical development of Marxism, it also possesses a large emotional significance in socialist history, with the communards being viewed as the first martyrs for the socialist cause. I believe Marx himself best sums up the legacy of the Commune in his pamphlet Civil War in France, where he writes, quote, Working men's Paris with its Commune will forever be celebrated as the glorious harbinger of a new society. Its martyrs are enshrined in the heart of the working class. Its exterminator's history has already nailed them to that eternal pillory which the prayers of their priests will not avail to redeem them. What historical initiative! What a great capacity of sacrifice for the Parisians! History has no great example of a like greatness. End quote. The Paris Commune to me is fascinating because of the huge effect it has on history, despite the fact that it rarely comes up in discussions of the French revolutions. Everyone writes about 1789, 1792, and 1848, but very rarely is 1871 invoked. The violent suppression of the Commune is, in my opinion, one of the greatest crimes in modern history, although it is often overshadowed by the events of the Franco-Prussian War. No matter what one's personal beliefs are, one has to admire the bravery of people like Yaroslav Dombrovsky, Louis Michel, and Louis Charles de la Cluse, who knew that they were fighting a losing battle, but were nevertheless willing to risk it all for what they believed in. The Commune also presents us with an interesting historical counterfactual. What if the Communards had succeeded? What would have become of France? It is not my place to decide such things, but it is interesting to think about. What are your own thoughts on the Paris Commune? If you have any burning questions, want anything clarified, or want to send me suggestions, you can email the podcast at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such quandaries to me on Twitter and Facebook, links to which will be in the description. And with that, I bid you all farewell. It was my honor to guide you along in this journey through mid-19th century France. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time as we travel back to Renaissance Sweden, as we cover the life and times of Queen Christina. Until then, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, William Connor, signing off.